This uh, brief study through Revelation is, is turning out to be fun for me. Hopefully it'll, it'll be uh, useful for you. Uh, last week I tried something new with the, the board. Um, people said it was relatively useful, although apparently I need some practice drawing circles. They were, they were rather odd shaped. They weren't very circular. There were a lot of egg shaped things in my illustrations. This morning I was tempted to bring it back, but I think we can remember most of what we talked about. The most important thing that will apply to what happens in our sermon today is how the temple is moving out as the means by which heaven and earth interact. We talked about how these are two places that God created. That there was God, and then He created two spaces. He created heaven, and He created earth. And in the beginning, before sin, they were perfectly integrated. There was both a distinct reality that heaven was the place where God primarily dwelt, and earth and creation were primarily the realm of uh, Adam and Eve, those created in His image. But there was permeability. There was the expectation that one would move back and forth between heaven and earth quite easily. The Lord, through the garden, which was sort of the official meeting place, would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, and they would fellowship, and they would learn, and they would worship. And when sin entered, that connection between our place of dwelling, now polluted by sin, and God's place of dwelling, there needed to be a barrier, not for God's protection, but for ours, right? The reality is at that point, the earthly dwelling, the cosmos existing inside heaven just really wouldn't function well because just like a bacteria in a human body that needs to be eradicated, the holiness of God could not stomach, could not allow sin to exist in the midst of its presence. And there needed to be for our sake and God's plan of redemption because He loves us and doesn't want to simply eliminate His creation, but He wanted to redeem it that he created a space where there was limited permeability. And that started off at the gates of Eden. It then became the tabernacle. And then eventually the temple. And it's that focus, that place where the realm of heaven and earth could for a moment be permeable, where humanity and God could meet and be encouraged and strengthened and give right glory to their Creator. And what happens in the New Testament because of Jesus is that Jesus grabs hold of all of that temple language and says, that is now me. These stones are not going to stay on top of each other. The function of the temple was limited and it had a life expectancy. And that is near an end. And now I will become the means by which Heaven and earth are once again joined. And there becomes then an increasing openness and there is the opportunity again for heaven and earth to be in ever greater fellowship. There's no way to graph a line to say that we're inexorably moving towards the kingdom of God. There's no way to then you know, sort of do the math and figure out when the full eclipse will happen where they overlap. That's not the point of revelation and that's not the point of explaining the need and the expectation for now Christ to be that place where heaven and earth can meet and fellowship and have peace again. 
And the hope and expectation is that in the renewed heaven and the renewed earth, we will find ourselves again with very little sense of a separation between heaven and earth. The place where God dwells and the place where we dwell will have that wonderful connection and fellowship and extension of one another in perfect harmony. And so Revelation is saying this is what is happening. And it's giving us a vertical view of this, right? A lot of what Paul tells us is often a combination of vertical and horizontal. Jesus often speaks on the horizontal. Here's what we do. And then he gives us a picture of who God is, right? The vertical is the relationship of the divine to creation. The horizontal is what you and I regularly see because we don't often have the divine perspective except through Scripture. And so what we have in the midst of what's going to be a very difficult time for the seven churches, we skipped over that in our series, but we can have fun with it in the future, is that there is going to be a time of great difficulty coming into uh, the next few years in these churches in Asia. And they need a vertical view of what's going on. Because what's going to happen to them is earthquakes that will eliminate cities. Upheaval that may cause internal wars and people are going to die. There's going to be persecution against the church and just by claiming the name of Christ, people are going to be thrown to the lions. And if all I have is a horizontal view, if I have no sense of the eternal, no sense of God's omnipotence and God's beginning, middle, and end. We talked about the Alpha and the Omega last uh, time. We talked about how God was and is and is to come. He functions in time differently. If I don't have a vertical perspective for my suffering, then it's going to seem pretty pointless pretty quick. And so John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is giving us a 40,000-foot view where you and I usually spend all of our lives about five feet off the ground. And we need both. We can't stay in the heavenly realms because there are things we need to do. But if we only spend our time on the things right in front of us, we will miss the reality that God is moving His creation forward. And that none of these things are happening outside of his control. And so we now enter into the throne room because it's so important before the seals start getting opened and all of that to know who's in charge and what does that look like. And so we are now ushered into the heavenly throne room at this point in history. Interestingly enough in Revelation, we'll talk about this later as we go on, the throne room changes a little bit. It doesn't stay exactly the same. There are things that will change in the image that John sees as heaven and earth get closer together, as the consummation comes, as sin and death are finally removed. But this is our first view, if you will, at Revelation of the throne room. And I'm going to go ahead and start back uh, in verse 6. And between the throne... And the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb, standing as though it had been slain, 
with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests of our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I took and heard, sorry, then I look, looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To Him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Lord, we are very glad that You give us these visions, we pray that we might rest in them. Lord, the imagery from several centuries, millennia ago, sometimes is troubling. Not the way we talk today. But we pray, Lord, that the eternal truth of the comfort and the reality of the Lamb who can open the scrolls and move history, not in reaction, but in authority, might comfort us this morning. And we pray that we would be encouraged. And whatever is said this morning that is not true and useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. Amen. Now I am as guilty uh, as most parents of encouraging my children to pursue useful degrees. Useful being degrees you can get a job with right? It's been kind of a failure. Uh, Walker got a history degree, um, and Hannah got a poli-sci degree, and then Evan, thankfully, my most useful child, got an education degree, so he can actually get a job, and then Tyler's studying politics again. So we're not really good at getting useful degrees. But what I certainly know is that above all things, It's just hard to encourage kids to pursue the arts, right? I mean, it's it's just that notion that playing in a band probably won't help you make a living. And I'm glad you love to draw and are artistic, but you can't really make a living doing that. And yes, it'd be fun to write songs and poetry, but nobody actually makes a living doing that. And we have this notion of pragmatics, of making a living in our society, and I'm sure it's probably often 
culturally transferable. That certain things that seem to be more likely to provide for us, right? It used to be being a hunter, I suppose, or being a warrior. Whatever it is that in any culture we've defined as being the thing that's likely to make you money is the things we encourage our kids to do. And yet, our definition of pragmatism and what is a useful thing to do may not exactly be the same as God's. That is to say that the way he honors all of his gifts and all of the things he wants to see his people do is often presented in various ways, whether it is Jesus honoring the fishermen and the simple work by being a carpenter, or when he describes his own throne room and reveals it to John, the way he honors those who write poetry and music and use imagery to help us understand the fullness of who he is Revelation is, above all things, artistry. It is prophetic. It is a 40,000-foot view of what's going on, but it is beautiful and awe-inspiring and terrifying, all things that the arts do far better than other aspects and other jobs in God's creation. And so I suppose what I'm trying to do in this, in this opening illustration is at least, because my kids are all gone, so I can tell the younger parents to risk it this way. What does it look like for us perhaps to recognize that in the fullness of God, that it isn't always our concept of what is initially pragmatically useful that is the same way that God thinks about what is useful and pragmatic. Because the reality is, as we read on Triumphal Entry Sunday, Palm Sunday. If they hadn't sung, if the children hadn't sung, the rocks would have. Pragmatically, he needed to be praised. The reality of his holiness is that is not going to be an event that happens without a choir, without celebration, without joy, without the beauty of the arts. And so as we enter into this uh, quick view of the throne room, we are struck by three things that we'll outline the sermon by. First, the power. Second, the praise, which certainly encompasses this idea of artistry. And then finally, our participation. So power, praise, participation, the outline for this morning's sermon. First of all, the power. The power, as we say regularly at CVP, I say regularly, is counterintuitive. We hear first, of course, if, you, if you've read uh, Revelation 5, you know that the, la- the lion is coming. The lion of Judah. And then I look, John says, and he sees a lamb. And then we get the extra that we read this morning, that it's not just a lamb, but it's a lamb that was slain. And so it's the Passover lamb, the lamb that seemed to be the one that was the sacrifice that was spread on the doorposts, and it was the victim. And all of that imagery of the lamb being the victim is now being flipped on its head because the lamb is now the only one powerful enough, holy enough, glorious enough, 
to actually walk up to the Ancient of Days and take the scroll out of his hand. No one passes it to him. He approaches the throne, reaches out his hand, and he takes it. Again, not grabbing it, but the point is he has the power and glory to stand in the presence of the Ancient of Days and for the Ancient of Days to give him willingly the power to open those seals. And again, we got to remember, these, when he opened these seals, and I, maybe this is just me, but I get the imagery of like opening Pandora's box and you pop it open and then a bunch of stuff happens that you really didn't plan on having happen. That is not what happens when the Lamb opens the scrolls. It's not as if some stuff pops out that are out of control of the Lamb. He just happened to be the person who could open it. When he opens it, he's in charge. He's decreeing it. It's not Pandora's box. It is the Lamb leading history through its process, ordained by the Ancient of Days with authority and power and purpose. Nothing's popping out. Things are being decreed and led. And that power, that glory, comes from something that the world and I regularly fail to appreciate. It comes from the suffering servant. It comes from the service to another. It comes from thinking of myself less and thinking of the needs of the other more. And that is shown to me not to be a weird human construct, but the very character of the Creator. Therefore, I reflect His image when I see power differently, when I see it as that which comes from a position of service because the world thinks the lamb is slain because it's a victim, because it wasn't strong enough to protect itself. And so it desperately tries to create some significance by saying, oh, well, it's, isn't it nice to be taken advantage of, but that's okay because God loves me. It's not trying to reframe and market a defeat. It is the ability to begin to actually believe that that wasn't defeat, that that is power, that it wasn't victimization, it was Him leading, that He was always in charge, that there was never a time in the whole horror of the passion in which he was not in complete control. That's power, but I can't see it very well. And so John so graciously, and the vision by the Holy Spirit, reaffirms the fact that regardless, I'm going to continue to have to wrestle with what power looks like. I'm going to have to chew on Isaiah 53 and marinate in it. I'm going to have to hold in tension the lion and the lamb and the lamb that was slain in my vision and in my heart that I might understand power differently because every day I experience power a very different way. And if you're not doing, you're getting done too. And that reality is a lie. It's real, it, it feels like it's going to be the eternal way in which things work, but it's not. And so with all of the things we're going to read about, if you read through the rest of Revelation, in particular the opening of the seals and the bowls, 
we have to remember where it starts. It's with a lamb that was slain. The one who's setting it right, not by using human power, but by giving himself. And so his power is to open the seals. He is the lion and the lamb, not a martyr, but a victor. It is because he's the redeemer, the song says. Because you have redeemed God's people, because you have given yourself that they might be restored. And again, very, very costly, right? His power is his willingness to give up stuff that's his. And you have to jump back to uh, the book of Ruth. I strongly encourage you to. When Boaz goes to the city gates to first address the person who is related to Naomi, This is the story of getting their land back. And Naomi and Ruth are now being cared for by a Boaz, but there's somebody who has the ability, because being biologically closer relationship, to redeem, to restore Naomi. And Boaz goes to him, being an honorable man, and he says, look, Naomi's back. She wants to sell her property. You can redeem it. The guy says, that would be great. Great agricultural land at bargain basement prices because she's under the gun. And Boaz says, oh yes, and by the way, there is a daughter-in-law. She does have rights, and so if you redeem this, you will have to take Ruth, which means your biological line, your family name is going to change because now you have to pick up Elimelech's line. Your line dies so that the knucklehead who left and went to Moab's line can continue. And the Redeemer says, well, I don't know. I'm not going to give up my family, my line, to redeem Elimelech. Heavens, no. You do it. And he does. Boaz's line stops. In one sense, Elimelech's line is restored. And through the restored line of a knucklehead who fled the promised land, David becomes ruler of Israel. And the line by which the Redeemer comes. So redeeming is not just taking a coupon and getting something that you were promised and you have a ticket that shows that you should get it. It is actually losing yourself that another might be restored. That's the powerful image of the Lamb. Now what I may be called to do in redeeming another is another issue. But what we know is God's power, the power of the Lamb, Christ's power, is that He gives Himself up that our names might be restored, that our names might be put in the book of life. He is a redeemer. And then there, of course, there is reconciliation. His power comes from the fact that he not only redeems Israel, but Israel now has a bigger image, which is every nation, every tribe, every tongue, into a kingdom of priests, which is how Israel was described in the Old Testament. The fulfillment of that promise. And now it's every nation and every tribe. He is a king who unifies all that has been separated into one kingdom. A kingdom of priests. I.e. those who serve before the Lord. Those who enter the presence of God. Those who communicate God to others. A nation of priests. 
Not surprisingly, this then elicits a little bit of praise. The glory of this elicits praise in a masterful and glorious way. I was talking to Sally beforehand. It strikes me that the way it's described as various groups are added to the choir and each one has their own verse and their own refrain and the fact that then the four living creatures summarize, they both begin it and summarize it at the end with an amen. This is an immense, beautifully choreographed choral presentation. Again, back to the arts. Back to those things that seem so impractical. And yet creation at this moment is described as a choir set up at various points for optimum singing and value and participation. And as the worship progresses, different elements of the choir join in and add their notes to what was started by the four living creatures and the 24 elders. And the praise of the Lamb expands and grows and you can feel the musical momentum building to a crescendo which is amen and amen. This is the one who reigns. Creation cannot help but praise. And the glory of it, of course, is that it's a new song. I was, ben and Katie went to a, a church back in Baltimore called New Song Fellowship. It was this idea that there was now, because of redemption, because of the joy of what God was doing, that the old songs of sadness and brokenness that were so real in that community, in Sandtown, that the new song could break in the song of the Lamb that was slain, that can restore families, that can rebuild communities and lives and communities. I said communities twice. What a great name for a church. A church of the new song, where the Lamb is lifted up and glorified and celebrated and praised. It is that wonderful song, Thou art worthy, O Lord. Thou art worthy to receive glory and honor and power. There's a whole part of me that thinks that there's got to be a way to sing that with even more zip. Because, I don't know, sometimes we can sing it kind of slow. Not because of Anna, but the tune itself feels like it's restrained. And there's just nothing restrained in those words. It is emotional exuberance in the glory and presence of God. Lastly, participation. Glorious organization, uh, which I've already talked about. The four beasts, the elders, the angels, every living creature, which then of course includes us. And then back to the four, creature, uh, the four living creatures. Worship is participatory. There's call and response in what's described here. There is one group starting one call and then it is responded to by the other group as they add to the richness of the description of who the Lamb was. Worship really should never be something whereby we consume what is presented to us. Part of the whole reason for the liturgy at CVP as we hope and believe that it's based on biblical rhythms in heavenly worship is that it by definition is going to be participatory. As God does something, we respond, not just EC up front, not just those who lead us in music, but we are engaged in a conversation. And we hope in ever greater degrees, as we try not to be overly constrained by culture, allowing that worship 
to reflect the reality of what it means to be engaged in a conversation with God and with one another. To tell one another the goodness of God. To tell one another the hope. To remind one another of the future. To console and to confront in the midst of the daily life. It is participatory. And I hope and encourage that as you raise your children, those who have young children, lead them through the liturgy. They are here to participate and worship. And they have opportunity, of course, in ever greater degrees as they learn to read, as they learn to sing and gain their voices, to sing out loudly and to participate in worship. They're not observers. They are participants. The conclusion then is simply that as the throne room is revealed, there is only often one way in Scripture to celebrate the glory of the firmness and solidity, absolute power and majesty, the confidence and hope, the sureness of all things is to break into song, is to celebrate in poetic language, is to delight and revel in the repetition of glory and honor and power, and to ascribe that glory and honor and power to the one who is glorious, who can only be described in language that is sometimes contradictory, a lion and a lamb, Seven horns, seven eyes. Why? Because nothing escapes his view. Nothing escapes his power and his direction. He is complete. He is whole. He is for us. And he takes the scrolls for our benefit to guide the churches. This is written to comfort those churches. Who is going to open the scrolls which have all measure of difficulty in them? The lamb who was slain. Not a great warrior who looks like he's going to be vengeful and angry. Not a desperate, disparate king. Not a callous religious priest. But the lamb who was slain. You can trust when he opens the scrolls that his leading is not just just, but merciful, that he understands the weight and the burden of what he's about to do because he submitted himself to it. A lamb that was slain. How glorious, how powerful, how comforting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. Again, Lord, it's hard to preach poetry. I just pray that the poetry would dwell more richly in each one of our hearts. That that song might be the song we sing. And in so doing, Lord, the joy of it, the hope of it, the glory of it would be contagious. Lord, may the application of this sermon simply be that we are people who rest in the sureness of the Lamb. And in so doing, the meditations of our hearts, and the words of our mouth, might reflect to all who hear the confidence of the King. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.